welcome back to Open Airways. This is a podcast on medicine, health policy, and life in the bluegrass. I'm Jessica Adkins Murphy, but you can call me Jess. I'm an ER doctor in residency in Kentucky, and I started this podcast last month because I'm trying to have a better understanding of the way social issues and legislation can impact and sometimes hinder the care that we can provide for patients and the health that we can establish for ourselves. Um, It's called Open Airways because as ER doctors, the first thing that we think about when a sick patient comes in the room is whether they have an airway that is patent, meaning open. And I think the first step in addressing a lot of these social issues is establishing an open line of communication in which we can be honest and talk about kind of some more challenging aspects that are are barriers to, to care and creating a better life for our patients. Last month, I released the first episode of Open Airways on the cruelty of miscarriage bereavement leave in the U.S., and a lot of you all gave me awesome feedback on that. I would love for anyone who uh, has some comments or something to add, a different perspective on that, to shoot me an email at openairwayspodcast at gmail.com. And um, I'd love to have people on the show if you, if anyone has personal experience with this and they feel comfortable sharing or anyone who has ideas on how we can address this. The next topic that I wanted to discuss is something that I've been really interested in ever since I had a, a patient encounter in my first year of residency in which uh, I cared for a 32-year-old woman who came in with law enforcement officers She had just been picked up for something that I believe was a drug-related crime. And on the way to the detention facility, she started complaining of chest pain and shortness of breath and nausea. So they brought her to the emergency department. After talking with her more, doing an exam and getting some tests, it became clear that her symptoms were due to a mild opioid withdrawal. So I let her know I was going to give her a dose of buprenorphine there in the emergency department to blunt the symptoms of her withdrawal. And uh, I was offering her a course of buprenorphine and naloxone combination medicine known as Suboxone to both... Um, treat her withdrawal symptoms. And in case she were released from the jail in the next couple of days, she would have the um, naloxone component in her system. So if she were to relapse, she uh, would be protected um, and have a much smaller chance of overdose. The law enforcement officer who was with her interjected into the conversation, oh, we don't do that. We don't give patients suboxone. Really? Even if a doctor's prescribing it and it's an evidence-based treatment for addiction, he said, it's our facility policy. And that brings me to our next topic. So to understand the story of addiction treatment for patients who are incarcerated, we only need to take a 10-minute drive to the edge of town, a place that now is known as Federal Medical Center, FMC Lexington. This place served as the epicenter of addiction medicine research through the Cold War era. It opened in 1935 as the United States Narcotic Farm in Lexington, Kentucky, and it was a detention facility that was really ahead of its time as a rehabilitation center for incarcerated people with addiction disorders. It was also open to those who would voluntarily enroll for detox, but the majority of them were incarcerated. 
I got a lot of the stories about this uh, facility and, and kind of how it operated and everything from a documentary that's available for free for anyone to watch called The Narcotics Farm. Um, but there's also um, extensive writing on this topic as well. Lots of books have been published about the, the U.S. narcotics farm in Lexington. Many of the inmates would come from places like New York City, where they would be picked up for a drug-related offense and then be offered either um, detention in New York City, where they came from, or potentially um, transferred to Lexington, where you were offered the opportunity to be slowly weaned off of your substance. And thousands lived at the farm between the time it opened in the 30s and closed in the 70s. And many of them were safely rehabilitated off of medications like opiates and um, those that are more commonly deadly in severe withdrawal like barbiturates and benzodiazepines. But hundreds out of those thousands were used in experiments in exchange, oftentimes for heroin. Um, these were experiments to better characterize how addiction works, how withdrawal works, and things like whether people can die of severe withdrawal. Why would people participate in um, experiments in which you are driven to the most severe extent of withdrawal to test whether it could kill you um, in exchange for heroin oftentimes? One of the people who was formerly incarcerated at the facility and, and participated in the experiments was on the documentary and described his experience of being offered either reduced jail time or heroin. And he says almost everyone chose heroin because when you're addicted, it's all you can think about and it's all you want. And there's really no choice there at all. And not only the heroin that they would be given for the study itself, they would be given like little bags of, of heroin that would be injected into their veins for them um, after the study was over, or they could even put it into a reserve with a, in a little window in, <laughs> in the prison in which they could go up at any time and um, say they were ready to withdraw from the bank and um, pull out their dose of, of heroin to take that they had earned the day before during a research study, for example. Interestingly, on the documentary, they also featured researchers who led these studies at the time, and many of them don't see anything wrong with the situation at all because the prisoners were consenting to these experiments. The prisoners who, the former prisoners who were featured on the documentary, say they too didn't feel exploited at the time. It didn't even cross their mind. They just felt that they were getting a, a good deal compared to what the rest of the prisoners were having to go through, being slowly weaned off of their drugs. But it wasn't until time went on that we had the revelation of the Tuskegee syphilis study and increased scrutiny on the treatment of humans in uh, experiments. And this facility in particular um, came under fire and even had congressional hearings in which the researchers and prisoners had to come before Congress and discuss what actually went on. And it, and it really was very eye-opening how inhumane the prisoners had been treated. It's difficult to obtain true and ethical consent from someone who is in acute drug withdrawal or someone who has active addiction especially someone who is incarcerated and doesn't have the ability to leave the facility, find another medical provider, or make really any meaningful decisions about their health. It's really just an incredibly fascinating story and really interesting to hear the perspectives of the former inmates who participated in these studies. 
and the perspectives of the researchers and the ways that they have been able to rationalize what they did. I think what gets lost is if hundreds of people were being experimented on during a time in which this incredibly shady experimentation was going on, it's unclear if we have a full picture of all those who suffered and may have even died from these experiments. But that was then, this is now, we have learned from that, and we would never treat incarcerated people with anything less than the utmost respect and dignity. (laughs) We're no longer putting people into withdrawal in order to collect data and publish it and gain some scientific prestige. We're putting them into withdrawal because we just don't care. In 2020, 2.1 million people were incarcerated in the United States. 2.1 million people. And an estimated 65% of them have an active substance use disorder. And yet, out of those who have an opioid use disorder, they have disproportionately low rates of buprenorphine treatment for their addiction compared to non-incarcerated people. And the opioid crisis is not going anywhere. Drug overdose deaths rose nationwide by 29% during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in Kentucky, they rose by 50% from September 2019 to September 2020 compared to the previous 12 months. This is particularly troublesome for incarcerated people, not just because they may have an active opioid use disorder when they get incarcerated and have a horrible withdrawal syndrome that goes untreated by buprenorphine, but also because multiple studies have indicated that one of the highest risk times for opioid overdose death is right after release from prison. In North Carolina, a really interesting addiction medicine study was released that found a 40-fold increased risk of opioid overdose death in the first two weeks after release compared to the general state's population's risk of opioid overdose disorder. Another study found a three- to eight-fold increased risk of drug-related death in the first two weeks after release when compared to the following nine weeks. It truly is that those first couple of weeks after release from a detention facility that these patients are incredibly vulnerable. The reason that buprenorphine is such a great option for these patients is because it reduces your symptoms of withdrawal. It reduces your cravings, it reduces your nausea, your um, diarrhea, your anxiety, um, all of these things. And the reason Suboxone is so great, a brand name combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, is because it also carries with it naloxone, which makes it both harder to abuse, and also it makes it much more difficult to overdose while you are on Suboxone. If you've taken your Suboxone and it has naloxone in it, naloxone is in your system, which is the overdose rescue drug, you may know it as its brand name, Narcan, and you relapse, it will protect you at a much higher rate from opioid overdose death. What we need is comprehensive psychiatric and addiction treatment for incarcerated patients. And some detention facilities are doing this. One of the first detention facilities in the state to be really aggressive about rehabilitation for their inmates is the Kenton County Jail. The Kenton County Detention Center in Independence, Kentucky, a few years back, started really focusing on rehabilitation and addiction counseling for their incarcerated patients. 
They hired an addiction services director and hired multiple counselors, focusing first on three months of intensive counseling, but also aftercare, including aftercare for patients who have been released from the detention facility. But what's really revolutionary about this is not just meetings with social workers and drug counselors, but that they also use medications for opioid use disorder, including Suboxone or the injectable form Sublocade. And it seems to be working. According to this article from Cincinnati Inquirer, only 24% of those who completed both the jail and the aftercare program have been arrested and jailed after three years. So it's been excellent for recidivism. That 24% compares to 68% recidivism after three years nationally. If we're looking at it from purely an economic perspective, it is not cheap, but reducing recidivism saves money for our justice system, for taxpayers, and it saves lives. I mean, when people have been started on Suboxone, their risk of dying from an opioid overdose death decreases by at least 50%. These aren't really changes that occur in our detention facilities because some emergency medicine resident gets on a podcast and talks up this other jail. It really has to come from the detention facilities who are already doing this, talking to other detention facilities about the benefits that they're seeing in their patients, in the recidivism rates, in the money that is saved, and really being evangelical about these programs. Fortunately, Kenton County Detention Facility, I know, has been... um, definitely a champion of this in our state, but other detention facilities that are enacting programs like this need to be outspoken and involved in helping this catch on in order to reduce recidivism, reduce opioid overdose deaths, and get these people back to enjoying their life, being good parents to their children, holding down a job, being there for their family members. So now when patients ask me if I can prescribe them Suboxone, even if they're going to jail, I put in the prescription. Even if they can't pick it up today when they're going back to jail, if they get released in a couple of days, I want it to be available for them. And if they can never get it, and someday soon we establish a precedent that this is cruel and unusual punishment, the lack of medical care for addiction treatment, I want that to be well documented that this patient was supposed to get proper addiction treatment and was denied treatment based on their incarceration status. Just like so many other diseases, addiction is, yes, associated with choices that we make, but that doesn't mean we let people suffer as a result. We still alleviate their symptoms and give them the best chance possible to make a better life for themselves. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Open Airways. And thanks for sticking with me. I know I said that it was only going to be probably two weeks between each episode, but then residency and life happened. And uh, now we're here four weeks later. But thank you so much for trusting me with your time and your attention on this important topic. But I'm really excited for what we have coming soon. I want to talk next about our sex ed system in Kentucky. Our sex ed system is really lacking, but not for lack of trying. A lot of people are trying hard to put through health education bills in order to try to address this issue. So in preparation for this, I would really, really appreciate if you all would email in your sex ed horror stories (laughs) or great stories if you had awesome sexual education experience. 
um, to openairwayspodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what sexual education was like at your school growing up. Was it sufficient? Was it corny? Was it helpful? Or was it just straight up traumatizing? Um, Please let me know. Hopefully it will be a bit of a lighter episode than usual, um, but it is seriously important. So I'm looking forward to you all joining me for that. Hopefully in about two weeks, but forgive me if it's like three or four weeks from now. (laughs) Once again, thank you for listening to Open Airways. I'm Jessica Adkins Murphy signing off and saying, may the world be your patient. Bye.